find your seats. We'll get started.
confession of sin this morning. We are brought to Isaiah 53, a pretty, pretty awesome message. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. you would all pray with me this prayer of confession, understanding the, the iniquities that we have, understanding the provision that, that Christ has, has brought to us. Heavenly Father, you are a great God and a great King above all gods, and your steadfast love endures forever. The ruler of all the earth, the one who knows all things, and yet in our sin we harden our hearts. We become calloused in our sin and impatient to your will. Break our hearts over our iniquity and soften us to believe the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to look to Christ and live. Would you please turn to hymn number 319? We'll sing Psalm 
that you would continue to pour out your, your spirit on this body, that you would continue to, to birth within this body, Lord, a light to the rest of Scotland, Lord. Father, we just come before you broken and contrite, asking, Father, for your will be done in us and through us. Be with Pastor Kendall today, Lord, as he brings his word, as he brings your word. Use him, Lord, richly. May we all be receptive to what you would have for us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We now look to the Baptist Catechism. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Would you read the answer along with me? Faith, faith in Jesus Christ, Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Amen. You guys can be seated. Good morning again. If you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 9 through 15. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we, th we come before you this morning, and as we've walked through the word this morning, we are made so aware of two things. Your holiness, justice, and righteousness and our unholiness, our unrighteousness, and our injustice. And this morning, Lord, we come before you asking that you would rend our hearts, that you would cause us to see those two truths with such clarity this morning that we can't leave this place in the same way that we came. That as we look at John's Gospel this morning, and as we look to Christ, would we see those two things, the greatness of our sin and misery and the greatness of your mercy and justice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you minister to us this morning by your word and spirit, and would you make us new? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, we come this morning to one of my favorite sections. Last week was maybe one of my top favorites. This week might be up there as well. And it's really a continuation of what we've gone through in John's Gospel, really starting all the way back at chapter 2, that we've seen these signs that Jesus has performed, turning water into wine, cleansing the temple. And then we came to this passage at the end of chapter 2, where we see these people believing in Jesus because of the signs that he does, but he does not entrust himself to them. That he knows the heart of every human, every man, every woman. He knows the thoughts, intentions, desires, and he's not fooled by their false faith. Because their faith is not in him, it's not in his person and work, it's in the things that he can do. The earthly benefits that he can give, the miraculous things that he can do. And it's not in the person and work of Christ. And then last week we saw an example of what this faith is 
in the man Nicodemus. That he's a ruler of the Jews, he's a religious man, he knows all the right answers, he's memorized a good portion of the Old Testament. He admits these great things about God, that he can work signs, that he can do wonders, that he's sent from God. And yet we see Jesus confront his very soul and we see that he's not born again. That he knows these great things about God, that he's following Christ, but it's for these superficial reasons and he's not been born again, he's not been born of water and the Spirit, that he's actually far from the kingdom of God, and that he needs the triune God to make him new. And so we see, and what we'll see this morning, is that even though Jesus confronts Nicodemus, his necessity that he needs to be born again, he doesn't leave Nicodemus there that he doesn't keep him in this sort of helplessness, but he points him to his great need. So not only does he show Nicodemus what needs to be done to him, that he needs a sovereign work of God to make him be born again, but this morning we'll see Christ point Nicodemus to the grounds and atonement by which this new birth is even possible. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll look at verses 9 through 15. I'll pray for us, and then we'll study God's Word. So this is right after Jesus talked about the necessity of Nicodemus to be born again. And Nicodemus says these words. How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. Fill us with your spirit this morning that we might see Christ more clearly and understand our great need this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we see Nicodemus confronted by our Lord. We see him, his soul laid bare, everything that he's worked for in his life, his memorizing of the law, keeping of the law, was all external, and there was no internal work that had been done. That he had made the outside look great, but the inside was dead. And so we saw last week Nicodemus confused by this. He's confused by Jesus' words, this necessity of the new birth. But as we'll see, that it's just very interesting what the first thing Nicodemus says is. If you look at verse 9 there, Jesus had just told him that no human effort can get him into the kingdom, not being born into the right family, not working his hands to the bone, that he is helpless without the Spirit of God working in his soul. And notice what Nicodemus didn't say. He didn't say, you're right. 
He didn't say, you're right, I need a sovereign work of God in my heart. He didn't humble himself. He asked this question. It's almost, he's confounded. He said, how can these things be? You mean that I've kept the law my whole life. All these people have been following me. My, I was born into the right family. I'm a Jew of Jews, and it means nothing. You're saying all these external things mean nothing. And Jesus, in verse 10, confronts this when he says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He's basically saying, you've missed something. You've missed something. You've missed really the whole thing. That you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand. You study Moses, but you missed his message. And you're a master of the scriptures and of the Israel, and yet you've missed the whole point of the Old Testament. And that's what Nicodemus had missed. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 11, that Nicodemus had missed the whole point of the Old Testament scriptures. That he knew the scriptures, he'd searched them, but he'd failed to see what the scriptures were pointing to. What their goal was, what their scope was, what their aim was. That the Old Testament was not written mainly for good moral teaching, its ethics and wisdom, for its history of earthly Israel, but to show the helplessness of sinful humanity apart from God and the necessity of the person and work of the great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus had missed this. And if you want to turn just a couple pages to John chapter 5, verse 39, we see Jesus confront this with other Pharisees. He says these words, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. That the Pharisees could search the scriptures all day. They could memorize the scriptures. They could read the Bible all day long and miss the whole point of the scriptures. He'll later go on in verse 46 and 47. He'll confront them because they're seeking the glory of man and not the glory of God. And he says these words, For you believed Moses, but if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. But if you do not believe my words, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That what Christ is saying here, that they've searched the scriptures, but they missed Christ. They searched Moses, and they put their hope in Moses, but it's actually Moses that will condemn them. Because Moses wrote of Christ. So Jesus here is confronting Nicodemus that he's missed the whole point of the scriptures. He's forgotten about his sin. He's forgotten about his need for a savior. He's tried to follow the law to be made right with God, but there's no life in him. That the savior of the world, the son of God incarnate, was standing right in front of him, and he'd missed the whole point. He'd missed the whole point. That the light of the world, the savior of the world, was there in his midst, and he had missed it. He had missed it. But we see that Jesus does not leave Nicodemus here. That he gives hope. And we see in verse 11, Jesus say these words, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, if we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. What is Jesus saying here? It's kind of cryptic. It's not that Nicodemus and the Pharisees didn't know Jesus' message. It's not even that they didn't understand Jesus' message, what he came to do, but they did not accept it. They were unwilling to accept it. And we can ask ourselves why. Why was Nicodemus missing the light? Why was he missing this one who had come into the world to save sinners? And all we have to do is go a couple verses down to chapter 3, verse 19, where Jesus will say these words, This is the judgment. That light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That Nicodemus and the Pharisees, they knew that the light had come. They were not ignorant to the coming of the light, but they did not want the light because they knew it would expose their evil deeds. They knew it would expose their wickedness. And so we see Jesus, in the next verse, make an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if Nicodemus can't understand these simple truths of the Christian faith, the new birth, the necessity to be born again, the power of the Spirit, how is he going to understand the more weightier truths of the faith? And so he asked this rhetorical question. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, right? This is a rhetorical question. If you can't believe these simple things, how can you believe these more weightier truths? And the answer is, there is no way. If you can't understand the simple, you will not understand the weightier things. He's saying it's impossible. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. That the natural man can't understand the things of God, the simple things, the weighty things, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, that they are spiritually discerned, that it requires an act and power of the Spirit. And so I told you that Christ was going to give Nicodemus hope. You might be thinking to yourselves, this seems pretty hard. <laughs> this seems pretty harsh of Jesus, right? He said he needed to be born again. He said that the new birth is a sovereign work of the triune God. He said that Nicodemus is the teacher of the law. This would have meant that he was one of the master teachers. He was not just a regular Pharisee. He is the teacher of Israel. And yet he doesn't understand and Jesus, as we said last week, he knows what Nicodemus' great need is. That he doesn't need a pep talk, he doesn't need a motivational speech, he needs his soul to be laid bare, and he needs to see what Christ came to accomplish. And we see Jesus give that in verses 13 through 15. And then maybe as you were reading this whole thing, it was a little bit obscure, but especially verses 14 and 15. What is the serpent in the wilderness? What does it mean that the Son of Man must be lifted up? What's he talking about here? Now, as we'll see in verses 13 through 15, that Jesus is going to refer to a pretty obscure Old Testament story. And by doing that, he's going to say that it's a picture 
of what he is going to accomplish, namely on the cross. And to do that, to understand what Jesus is doing, we need to turn to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, where we see the story of the bronze serpent. That Jesus here in verse 14 says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So if you want to turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, we'll see this story of the bronze serpent. That God, by Moses, had just redeemed the people out of Egypt. He'd redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, through the Red Sea, that he had rained miraculous manna, bread from heaven, to sustain them on their wilderness journey. But the people became impatient. They became hard-hearted. They became evil in their thoughts. It says that they spoke against God and against Moses. That they actually wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. That they didn't like this redemption that God had worked in their lives. That they actually despised God. They despised his bread. They were sick of this miraculous bread that God was raining down from heaven. And they became impatient. And they spoke against God and against Moses. And we see there in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. That God sends fiery serpents among the people, and they bite the people, and they die. Now, this imagery of fire and serpents is throughout the scriptures, right? Fire in the scriptures is usually a reference to God saving people through judgment. God saving his people through judgment. We can think of in the book of Genesis with Lot and his family, right? There in Sodom and Gomorrah, God is going to pour down fire and destroy and judge the people of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. But through that fiery judgment, he saves Lot and his kids. Also in the book of Daniel, we hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Who will not sin. They will not bow the knee to the idols. They will not worship other gods. And because of that, they're thrown into the fiery furnace where the person that threw them in is killed because of how hot it is. But through that fire, we see them saved. So fire is this picture of God's judgment, but salvation through it for his people. And serpents, as we know, are also prevalent throughout the scriptures, going all the way back to Genesis 3, to the garden, to the fall into sin. And here, we see them as a picture of the people's sin. They're a picture of the people's sin. That God sends these serpents as a judgment on the people. Fiery pictures of the people's sin. That they had spoken against God, and this is a judgment. And we see in verse 7, the people cry out for mercy. The people cry out for mercy. They see their sin, and they call out for intercession and for salvation. You can see that in verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. 
for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to God that he take away the fiery serpents from us. And so we see Moses, he prays for the people, he intercedes for them, and he tells God to have mercy on them. And God tells him this in verse 8. He says, Make, this is what the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What does this mean? <laughs> Is this some sort of weird idolatry that God's instituting? He told Moses to make a bronze serpent, a fiery bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and that if you look at the pole, if you look at the serpent, you'll live. That anyone who was bitten would be saved by this simple act of looking to this serpent. What does this mean? What is going on here? Because we see Christ say, just as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if we said before that the Old Testament is not just about ethics or morals, it is pointing to Christ and His work, we have the answer to that question. Now, what is going on here in the book of Numbers is an acted-out picture of what Christ would do in his atoning and substitutionary death on the cross. That Christ, the one who knew no sin, would become sin on the cross. That he would come to a sinful people, the one who knew no sin, and on the wooden pole of the cross, he would become sin for his people and take the fiery judgment that they deserved. And as we read this morning, he became accursed for us, that we were the ones that deserved the curse. The people in the wilderness that were complaining, that were hardening their hearts toward God, they were the ones that deserved the curse. They deserved to be killed for their sin. And God steps in and makes a way for them to be made right. That they would look to this bronze serpent on a pole and by faith they might live. And that was just a temporary living, right? It was just a temporary salvation from these poisonous snakes. But what Christ is saying in John chapter 3 is that in the same way that the serpent was lifted up and anyone who looked on them would live in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross, on the wooden pole, take the curse for his people, so that all who look on him by faith might live. And we see here a profound picture of not only the work of Christ, but the means of salvation. And so this morning, I only have one point, I only have one way of application, I only have one thing to say, and that is we need to look to Christ and live. We need to look to Christ and live. That we are all bitten by the poisonous venom of sin. That just as those fiery serpents came in and bit the people, so we too are bit by the poisonous venom of sin. 
and this poison is deadly. It is not a gardener snake, it's not anything like that, it is deadly. That our sin will kill us. And we have to believe that. <laughs> if we don't believe that, then we're not hearing what Christ is saying this morning. That sin is no light thing. As I said, that God is a holy God, He's a just God, and He can't sweep our sin under the rug, and we are guilty before Him. That we have not followed His law, as we read this morning. The law shows us how sinful we are, and when we take five minutes to look at it, we see our guilt before Him. And so the big question throughout the scriptures is how can sinful man stand before the God of all justice? How can us, sinful people, stand before the God of all justice and live? That God can't be bribed, He can't be manipulated, He can see the heart and intentions of every man, as we read in John chapter 2. And on our own, we cannot stand before God and live. That we're deserving of His wrath and punishment. And if we don't see that, we won't see our need for a Savior, we won't see our need for grace, we won't see our need to repent and turn. But the good news is that God, in His mercy, made a remedy. An anti-venom for the venom of sin. That God, in the fullness of time, sent forth His Son, the perfect Son of Man, the second and better Adam, that in His incarnation He descended from heaven, taking on flesh, human nature, born of a woman, born under the law, never failing at any point, never knowing sin, right? He became sin who knew no sin. He never knew sin. Me and you know sin every day, in our thoughts, in our deeds, in our words, in our actions. He knew no sin. And yet, he bore the sin and curse of others. And as we read in Isaiah, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That on the wooden cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. That God made him to be a sin-atoning sacrifice. And there's a great hymn, I hope we can sing it someday soon. It's in our hymnal, hymn 154, taken from Isaiah 53. The song is called, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Hear these words. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, now God has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, though fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. That the deepest stroke that pierced him 
was not the Roman soldier, it was not the Jews that said crucify him, it was God the Father pouring out his wrath for sinners on the Son. As we read in Isaiah, it was the will of God to crush him so that he might see his seed and be satisfied. That God in his mercy made a way that for all who look to Christ on the pole by faith might live. And as we read in our catechism, what is faith? What is looking to Christ? It's almost so simple we trip over it. It's receiving and resting on Christ alone. It's receiving all that Christ has done as a gift, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and resting on him alone for salvation. That as I said, at the cross we see the mercy and justice of God meet. That sin is no light thing, as this Song, as this hymn will later go on to say, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, may here view its nature rightly. At the cross, its guilt may estimate that when we look to the cross, the terrible death of our Lord, we see the terrible guilt of our sin. But we also see the great mercy of God for all that look to Christ. So this morning, may we not try to work our way up to God, may we not be found in external obedience alone, but may we look to Christ who was raised and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we see the greatness of our sin and our misery. And if we can look at the cross and take it lightly, then we've missed the cross. Help us this morning to see the weight of this perfect sinless Son of God who knew no sin, bearing the weight that should have been ours, taking the curse that we deserved so that we might be made right with you. Help us this morning to not try to trip over the simple message of faith in Christ. May we look to him and live. And may that not keep us in the state of our sin, but may we press on by the power of your spirit to life and eternal bliss, where we have hope outside of this world, outside of our sinful bodies. May we look to Christ this morning and receive him and rest on him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. And so this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of John 6 where Jesus said, I am the true manna. I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. That the body and blood of Christ is true bread, it is true drink, and that we should look to him. That he's the one who sustains us on our wilderness journey to the heavenly promised land. That we have no hope to make it to heaven without his intervention, without his spirit working in us, conforming us to Christ's image. That he's the one that sustains us 
by his daily bread. So may we look to Christ, may we look to his body and blood, but may we also take heed this morning that just as the people in Psalm 95 harden their hearts, it's so easy for us to do the same thing, to harden our hearts to our sin, to callous ourselves to God and the things of God. And as I say, every week we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Paul says that we need to examine ourselves lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. He said, this is why some of you are ill and even why some of you had died. That the, this is a serious thing and we cannot harden our hearts and come to the table. And if we're in unrepentant sin, we need to abstain and search our hearts and ask for true repentance. But if we have been saved, if we have repented, if we have turned, then this is a means of grace, a means of assurance that God has done what we could not, sent his son, broken his body instead of ours, spilled his blood instead of ours, that we might be made right. So may we come this morning confessing our sin, of our particularly known sins particularly, as our confession says. That we wouldn't be vague in our confession, I'm a sinner, I need a God, that's great. But may we think of the ways that we have fallen short, that we have done wrong, that we have sinned. May we bring those to the Lord, knowing that all those who put their faith in Christ will never be confounded, that they have a hope that's built on the finished work of Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Supper, that here we see a visible word of the covenant promises of the new covenant. That as we read this morning, under the law, we are hopeless. We cannot obey. We can't. Our nature is corrupted. Every desire in us wants to break the law and that means death. But in the new covenant, you have sent your son to be the perfect lamb of God that takes away our sin. And this morning, may we look to him, may our faith be in him, and may we run to Christ, look to him by faith, and be saved. Take these common elements, and may they be used for your holy purposes for the assurance and growing of your saints. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to come as you're able, we'll form a line and go back to our seats. We'll partake together.
our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So may we drink the wine, remembering and believing that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand, we will respond to God for this great act of salvation. If you want to turn in your hymnal to number 214, we'll sing, It is well.
time in our service where we respond to God for all that he's done, all that he's provided, by giving a part of what we've been given back to him. Let's pray for our tithes and offerings. Lord, we come to you this morning aware of all the ways that you provided for us and how often we take those for granted. This morning, may we respond to you in worship, giving a part of what you've given to us back to you so that your kingdom might grow and your saints might be edified and people that do not know you might come to faith in Christ. We pray that you would use these humble gifts and offerings for your purposes. In your name we pray. Stand with me. We'll close with singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Grace and peace as you go this morning.